Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Hello, today is the kickoff of another brand new series called Hidden Gems and Unsung Masterpieces. of this podcast is to reconsider all aspects of the Beatles through a new lens, challenging old assumptions and beliefs, and introducing new thinking and fresh insight with the goal of getting to a more well-rounded view of the Beatles and their story. I thought this should include music as well, because times change and tastes change, and sometimes great songs get overlooked or missed. So this series is about giving people the opportunity to advocate for a Beatles-related song they love. Now, basically, these are the rules of engagement for this series. Guests can champion any song from the Beatles catalog or from their solo catalogs. It can be any song that they recorded themselves or songs that they wrote and others recorded. All of these are fair game. It doesn't have to be a list of favorite songs nor deep cuts because there are very few songs that would qualify. They simply have to be songs that the guest wants to champion. If, for example, someone wants to champion Strawberry Fields Forever because they think its genius has not been adequately recognized, then this is the place for it. If someone wants to champion McCartney's Cufflink, then go for it. I'm all ears. This is basically an opportunity to argue for a song's greatness. Now, to kick off this series, I have the ultimate guests. Not only did they go to the Liverpool Institute, but they themselves are songwriters and podcast hosts about songwriting. And so, of course, I am referring to Soda Jerker, which is made up of Simon Barber and Brian O'Connor. So, hi, guys. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us on. You both went to the the Liverpool Institute. So, obviously, you are steeped in Beatles history and heritage. Are you guys as knowledgeable about their, their solo work? Um, certainly, Paul's... Mostly Paul's in my case, really. Um, I know a, a few George solo albums, a couple of Ringo ones, and obviously John's uh, solo Uber is a lot smaller for obvious yeah. reasons. But so I'm, I'm quite familiar with, with with John's as well. Yeah. George, yeah, I, I've only ever really skimmed the surface of, of George's stuff. Yeah, I'd say I'm probably more familiar with Paul as well. Me and Brian are sort of Paul fans. Well, yeah, we're, we're Paul guys. <laughs> we'll, we'll lay that out early on. <laughs> yes, well, the, the lists are a little bit Paul heavy, although we tried to make sure they were representative. It's so funny because, you know, this is the first time doing this, and I think I might have been a little ambitious in terms of assigning us all six or seven songs. And this is the craziest thing 
is that Simon and I, when we revealed our lists a little bit in advance of this, four of the six of our lists are the same. So I don't know whether it means that those are incredibly deserving songs or else we just have the exact same taste. <laughs> probably the latter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably, probably. Okay, so um, before we jump in, I just want to spend a few minutes on Get Back. What surprised you? Did the, did the film, the documentary, change your mind about anything? And then what surprised you about it? Well, I was talking about this the other day, actually. I didn't find it that surprising. Mm -hmm. um, Certainly, you know, the the sort of um, the reframing of the story in this slightly more positive light. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'd heard Mark Lewison talking about hearing the, the entirety of the Nagra tape and his conclusion upon listening to all of that was getting along pretty good. Yeah. You know, for the, obviously they had their moments, um, but, but generally the mood wasn't as gloomy as has been portrayed, mm -hmm. even by the Beatles themselves over the years, That's you right. know, so... So when it came to that documentary, I, I, I wasn't that surprised that a lot of it was quite um, upbeat, should we say? Yeah. That didn't surprise me. Or really, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, wow, you know. I, I found it funny that a lot of people were like, wow, Paul McCartney's so talented. <laughs> Paul McCartney's so musical. That seemed to come as a surprise to people. I was like, where have you been for like 60 years? Um, but that's sad though, yeah. isn't it? Like that somehow his image has gotten so weird that people could actually say that yeah that well i think that's what it is i think some people just are around for so long and just almost become part of the furniture yeah, and yeah. their actual talents what they bring to the table yeah. in terms of artistry just gets completely overlooked yeah. i think that, that you know you, you can talk about prince in the same terms yeah. he just became this this floating entity yep. of, that's of prince and no one actually a lot of people weren't aware of just how talented he actually was oh. um I think Cosy made it. Some people just make it look kind of easy, I yeah. guess. And Paul is one of those people. And they're both kind of private. You know what I mean? Like they don't really, Prince didn't really talk about his art, you know, mm -hmm. in the way that Paul doesn't really either, you know? Mm -hmm. They just are people that produce. Yeah, exactly. They're more interested in just doing the work yeah, than maybe yeah. talking about the work. Yeah. So it didn't shock you. Was there anything that you were like, wow, that's, that changed my mind? Hmm. <laughs> I think aside, was there anything surprised you? I think I was like you in the sense that I already kind of felt like I knew their personalities. And when I saw them interacting, I wasn't particularly surprised that they were like that with each other. And it was quite, you know, fun and upbeat. I think hearing the actual language they use day to day in, you know, in long conversations where normally they would cut to the next big event where you actually got to hear like the, the sort of slang that they used and yeah. things. And that was surprising to me because it was like, wow, they talk the way that we talked when we were at school in Liverpool, like some of the same phrases and things. And that stuff obviously comes from that area and has never really left. You know, it was there in the 60s and it was there when we grew up as well, mm. you know. So that was amazing. And of course, there were some incredible revealing moments in it, weren't there? Like seeing Paul developing get back in the moment and seeing that young lad sit with Paul at the piano while he's sort of teaching him how he writes a song and these are things that are just magical to watch aren't they so yeah I loved it for all of that really yeah yeah the foot I mean all the footage was just absolutely delightful and priceless don't make out that was 
oh, well, I wasn't any surprised and I was, you know, like I'm this jaded kind of <laughs> person. Like, it, it, I had loved every second. I didn't want it to end. Yeah. I wanted to kind of, when they were all getting the coats on at the end of the day, I was I wanted to go with them. I was like, no, <laughs> can't, we, can't we go to dinner with them now? And, you know, it's true. Um, so it was sweet. just great to hang out with those guys for, or feel like you were hanging out with those guys for, you know, eight hours or however long it was. Well, that's interesting. I think some bands you'd kind of watch and go, that was fascinating. And yet I really would not want to hang out with them. Whereas with the Beatles, it's kind of like, now I want to see every album that you guys did. And I want to see more of your life, you know, because they're, yeah. they're fascinating. And to your point, Simon, they're also human beings, which I think doesn't make them less. Like seeing them in the day to day doesn't sort of ruin the mystique. It kind of makes you realize they're people like us. And yet they did these things. Yeah, and it reveals the sort of pedestrian nature of creativity in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. Yeah, you know, yeah. you just turn up and you sit there half bored watching Paul mess about on the bass and then eventually, oh, that's something, let's try that. And yeah, then yeah. something comes to life and then it's back to making tea and sitting there, you know, bickering. Because yeah. that's kind of what it's like to be in a band. <laughs> and that's what that revealed really well, didn't it? The, yeah. the nature yeah. of being in a band. Yeah. Yeah, and it, I think it will have long-term implications because... So many of the things that have been written were taken from, say, John and George's post-breakup and even Paul and Ringo's post-breakup view of the period. And sometimes like I, I think of the way that George or John were characterized as behaving towards Paul. I just think, I hope people can't believe that anymore because when you look at it, it's, you can see their friends, you can see their mates and their family, you know, and the bickering mm -hmm. isn't as serious as we were led to believe by various books, yeah. you know? What, what, one thing I didn't necessarily, I mean, some people reacted um, to to George's, how George is represented in the film quite interestingly in that they seemed to almost feel like he was a victim. Yeah. Which I didn't, I didn't get that personally. And I've, and I've never got that from George ever. Um, I've always felt George was a very self-possessed, confident person. I'm sure he had his, his vulnerability as well, but in watching that film, like, you know, a lot of people mention the moments he presents I Me Mine yeah. and yeah, and John sort of comes in and he's like, we don't do waltzes and whatever, but, and some people, so I think I think some people took that as a sort of face value, maybe, mm -hmm. um, that John was being dismissive of the song and dismissive of George. Because yeah. I just saw that as just a... Uh, into band member banter for the ones of a better word you know what i mean and and when him and yoko started waltzing around i didn't see that some people saw that as mocking yeah and i didn't see it as that and george is sitting there smiling and yeah. saying oh you should do that on the show yeah, too yeah, yeah. like whatever the show's going to be like he's he, george's taking it in a kind of good yeah. spirit so i never felt obviously george wasn't having a good time hence him leaving after a few days and, and stuff but again i think that was just him just being you know Oh, fuck this, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, knowing himself and not having a good time, so I'm going. And then, you know, they all respected them enough to, to go and have two meetings with them and then do things how he wanted to do them. They ended up in Apple because George uh, wanted to do it there. And, you know, he just hated Twickenham. Would much rather do it in a cosier environment. So they all said, OK, yeah, whatever, whatever you say, George, essentially. Yeah. And that's not that's not to me, though, they don't respect George or they look down upon George. You know, they think they value them in the same way you know, Ringo was like, well, I'm not going abroad. Yep. You know, right, well, Ringo says he's not going abroad, so we don't go abroad. 
I think they had, a, you know, as Paul's always also said, a very democratic setup in the Beatles. Um, so that was something I, yeah, I, I, I took it from. But and also George is the only one who's saying. He says at one point, "I'm not. Essentially, I'm not giving you my best. I'm not giving my yeah, best yeah, songs yeah, yeah, yeah. to this project. So you can have like for you blue, and you can have I mean mine. This one I knocked off last night. Yeah, yeah. Which not. Just, I mean, you know, I, I like that song, but still, you know, he was holding stuff back. You know, he obviously had all the songs for all things was past, or, or a lot of them at that point. Yeah. So um, you know, he was smart enough to go like, mm, I'm not sure what this is going to be, so right. I'm, I'm not going to give me best material to this. And, he, and you hear him sort of essentially say that. So again, I don't, hear, I don't view George as this old poor put upon George. I love that point, Brian. I don't either. That's the thing. I've had many conversations about Get Back, and that's a point that I wanted to make after all this discussion, like a couple of people said, well, when he unveiled his songs, like it was so hard for him to get his songs across because the guys didn't react to them well. And I was thinking, they don't react to anybody's songs. They don't, it's not like John's like, yay, Paul, thank you for bringing that, you know, or John, <laughs> yeah. let's hear your great song. The thing is, is that Paul and John are just more confident. They're just like, this is the mm -hmm. new song. And George is a little bit more tentative. You know, I do understand that it's difficult for George because you can see the bond between Lennon and McCartney mm -hmm. is so strong. I think that it's a difficult position to be in with Lennon and McCartney, just because it's tough to be in a band with a super strong partnership, but that doesn't yeah. mean that they disregarded his songs, you know? No, exactly. No, no, no. George's biggest problem is that he was in a band with Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was aware of that. He was very, very aware. You know, George was a smart guy. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, I mean, George had some brilliant lines, like, I think I'm just going to do me for a while. I mean, that was so cool. I was like, yeah, yeah, George, you go do you, because that's the best thing you can do. Like, I think that it would have been good for him to do an album, because I don't necessarily want Lennon and McCartney not to be strong, but I do mm -hmm. want George to feel good, too, you know? So it's, it's a conundrum, but I think that's a great, great point. And... You know, I'm sure there's lots of George fans that would love to come on and, and you know, push back against that. But mm -hmm. George was a quarter of the Beatles. When he walked out, they were all upset. They figured it out, you know, and then they came back. It's just John and Paul are just self-centered and used to promoting their songs, you know? Yeah, that's it. And I mean, I hate to say it, but John and Paul have a different relationship than everybody else in the group. It's just that's different. It. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's jump into the lists now. This was the assignment. I suggested each of us choose six songs that we wanted to discuss, solo, Beatles, or Beatles. And uh, Simon and I ended up with four of the same six songs, which is incredible. I can't believe that we did that. But by the way, Simon, great list. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and Brian, nope. your list is good too, but we just don't have Thank the you. exact same list. No okay, so let's just jump right into our list. The first song, is a song from Simon's list, and it is the song No Reply. Okay, 
Tell me, why did you choose this song? Well, it came to mind because Brian and I did an interview a while back where we actually focused on the whole of Beatles for Sale. Mm -hmm. And this song really leapt out to me. Mm -hmm. And um, I hadn't spent that much time listening to it, but when we did it for that interview, I really sort of connected with it, you know. And um, obviously it's quite a simple premise, this song. It's a a sort of relationship gone wrong or a a dumping, if you like, (laughs) uh, kind of song. Ghosting, yes. Yeah, it's not not exactly groundbreaking in that sense, but um, there's something so John about the drama of this song, I think. Oh, so much drama. That that it really, really works. Um, This idea that, you know, the girlfriend is home but doesn't want to speak to him and um, he sort of cries out, doesn't he? you know, I saw the light, and yes, but it's not like you're lying. it's not like I've I've had a revelation. He means literally, I saw the light in the room. Yeah. You are home, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and um, and he says, well, he says I nearly died. I mean, you can feel the total desolation of you know yeah. his soul, if you like. Um, even though it's in the grand scheme of things, it's quite a minor thing that he's talking about, but you can you get the sense that he really truly feels it, you know. Um, and, and uh, the way they sort of narrate that through the song, you know, they said you were not home, that's a lie. You know, the, yeah. the language is yeah. quite pointed. It's quite um, charged, you know, and, and quite chilling the way they do it, almost like he's kind of in the dark, seeing the silhouette in the window. Yeah. It's quite, you know, quite chilling, I think. So, yeah, I think it's just a, a hint at the, the future emotional depth of the Beatles, I think. This is like a little window into what they're capable of. I mean, obviously, by that point, you know, they'd proven themselves as great songwriters, I think. But there was some, an extra level in this song that was revealed, I think. Yeah, I love a couple of your points there. That one, <laughs> I think John and Paul are both such drama queens when it came to relationships. You know, I think you're right that it's so charged. It's kind of like that emotion of early 20s. Everything's life or death. And the thought that John would react so much to being lied to, anyway, you know, <laughs> it's not that big a deal, but it was like death to John. And the yeah. way that they tell the story, you feel he sings it with such conviction. Definitely, yeah. And I think it had an impact on some other artists as well. Like Roseanne Cash did an essay about this song, didn't she, mm-hmm. Bri? She did, yeah, yeah. No, it's, um... sorry, sorry, go on. Carry on. No, I mean, I agree with everything that's been said. To be honest, it's um, it's interesting when you speaking of the drama. It's interesting if you listen to the is it on is it anthology one or anthology two? I can't remember. But there's a, an early attempt at no reply on. I think it's anthology one. perfectly fine the song is 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 there but in terms of the arrangements it's just not quite right the, the chords are a little straighter mm-hmm. um i think they're just kind of playing like straight chords but they're adding like sixths in the um in the finished version which just had a certain exoticism a little kind of almost latin flavor to it very dramatic sort of i nearly died i saw the light sections they're not quite they don't have quite the same impact Mm. in the earlier versions that was something they kind of 
seemed to work up in the studio, those, those dramatic moments where we kind of um, developed. As I said, the, the song was obviously there, but they they knew it needed that little extra uh, je ne sais quoi. I think that that's an important point. And for me, that the, the je ne sais quoi is Paul's harmonies. Like th that, to me, is what creates the urgency and what takes it from a good song to an incredible song, mm -hmm. you know? And I think Paul's role, like so often, you know, the early days are viewed as being more John dominant and the late later days more Paul dominant. I don't mm -hmm. agree with that. I just think they were more productive. John was more productive in the early days. But I think that Paul's contributions to John's early songs are just critical. And this is one of them. Like I listened to that song for that middle eight section where Paul comes oh, yeah. in, you know? If I were you And that to me makes it just so exciting. And it's kind of like the song's almost too short, you know, for me. Yeah, they pack they pack so much in though. I mean, that that middle eight, for example, is um so unexpected. Every time I hear that song, it's it takes me a little bit bit by surprise, that section, but it, it it's kind of unusual, but it, it does work. I don't quite know how they even arrived at that um, middle eight, to be honest. But yeah, you're right about Paul's contributions and I mean that's something I think throughout the whole Beatles catalogue. Like Paul really brought it to the other guys' songs. That'll come up in a couple of my selections as well late, later on. Mm -hmm. um, he was very generous with his talents and not just in the songs he produced himself, but in you know what he gave to the other guys in terms of like you know adding a harmony here or a, a great bass line there or some other musical flourish somewhere. You know he he, he really did enhance um, the other guy's songs whenever possible. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that Dick James, the publisher, really liked this one because it, he said it was a complete story. Mm. And, it, and it is, like Brian said, they pack a, a whole story into that couple of minutes. And it's, you know, it's for me, it's just a symbol of where they were going to go in the future, you know. Um, obviously, there's plenty of other Beatles songs that people want to talk about first. So in that sense, it is kind of overlooked. Yes. Uh, in the grand pantheon of Beatles songs, you don't <laughs> immediately go to that one. Um, so it doesn't get enough credit in that sense, but it is a kind of a, for me, an indication of a kind of a transition to maybe more kind of adulthood in, in their writing. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting because it's a story song. You know, later on, John would just speak directly from his emotions, whereas this is more of a story. But I, I personally feel his emotions as clearly with this song as I would with, you know, different subjects. But I think that the emotional spark of it is just as, um, just as clear. I feel it as deeply as I do in, in the later songs. And one thing that I always think about is like, John's got a bunch of songs at this time that are so charged. And I always think, 
who was John having relationships with? You know what I mean? Like that's that's one thing that there's just kind of a blank in in our knowledge of the Beatles is that if this was maybe two years earlier, I would think it was his relationship with Cynthia. But, you know, this is a little further on in their relationship. They have a kid, you know, it's not, not that everything has to be autobiographical, but I do get the sense that there is something that is true about this song. And, yeah. you know. Yeah, it might be drawn on, you know, his sort of art college years, maybe. Maybe. Because, um, yeah, you know, John's work is characterized by being very personal, or, or much mm -hmm. of it is anyway. Um, so, yeah, I would imagine maybe he's thinking back to sort of earlier uh, relationships before Cynthia. Because, um, yeah, as you say, you know, when was he having time to have that? You know, he had, obviously, he was touring the world and recording, and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't having relate. He was probably having dalliances yes. <laughs> <laughs> certainly not relationships you know right or these little dalliances he might have been that charged for the the three days that or whatever they were you know those mm -hmm. could be occupying his emotions or i have a i have a feeling this idea that somebody lied to or deceived john is something that he probably felt all the time with people you know it's just like i think john was a pretty pretty emotional guy so that's it yeah 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 okay well fantastic pick i also would have chosen this song so great job simon <laughs> i'm looking through you where did you go i thought i knew you what did i know Okay, the next song is from Brian's list, and it is I'm Looking Through You. Brian, this is your choice. Yes, um, a Paul song. Um, one of, well, if, if you know, Ian McDonald is correct, I'm sure you've uh, read Revolution mm -hmm. in the Head. He, he talks about uh, quite a few songs have been inspired by um, Paul's relationship with Jane Asher, mm -hmm. which I think around, around that time was maybe a little bit rocky. Um, well, I think it was always, yeah. Yeah, well, they've been together a couple of years by that yeah, point, and obviously, yeah. you know, just, uh, you know, their the, the lifestyles at that point, I couldn't help but bring about a certain amount of uh, difficulty and mm -hmm. friction. But, um, yeah, I mean, you've got this, you've got We Can Work It Out, um, Another Girl um, could maybe be classed as... Oh, yeah, uh, definitely, uh, like uh, weaponizing songs. Jane. Yes. yes, yeah, which if it's true, it's quite mean, really, when you think about oh, it. Oh, it's totally um, mean. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, and I'm looking through you. I think um, it stands out for me just as a uh, as a Paul song in in the same way as I guess something like another girl does. Just because it's it's a little bit acerbic, uh -huh. um, which is not something you associate with Paul. You know, he's generally quite an upbeat, positive um, person, and that comes through in his, a lot of his songs. But you know, he's not often like vindictive. <laughs> this song feels a little bit you know, vindictive to me. Um, but couched in the, just a great, you know, kind of rollicking feel and um, a great melody. Uh, you know, just your you sort of soul. As soon as he comes in with that, you know, that refrain, it's just, you know, you just soul. I'm just, I'm all in from that moment on. This was one I, and before I really knew what the song was about or anything, this is one I um, gravitated to a lot when I was a kid. When I first started listening to Beatles albums and 
you know, I maybe didn't have the patience to listen to the whole album and I just kind of flick fast forward to um, my favourites. And this on Rubber Soul was always one I used to um, kind of fast forward to. Um, I also find, it, I mean, it's just incredible really that, you know, you, you sort of deep into side two at this point from Rubber Soul and you're still getting songs of this quality and then you've still got In My Life to, to come, you know, it's yeah. kind of just the way they could spread this quality over like 14 tracks you know this, this it just doesn't flag that album at all yeah um but yeah the, the song i mean they made this maybe a little bit of musically a bit of a um a bit of a dylan influence in there which you could say about any number of songs from 64 65 i think he he was just in the air and and you know they were just uh, maybe paul wasn't as lyrically inspired by him but certainly the feel of some of his songs from around that time seemed, seemed quite folky and 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 you know yeah, I've just seen a face being another example, um, but yeah, um, what else to say? That's an interesting point about Paul being influenced by Dylan because that's something that you re- rarely hear. Um, you know, is Dylan's influence on Paul? You hear it more about George and John, you know. But yeah. I, but I've heard him interviewed a few times recently where he actually does talk about the fact that he was the first one to get the Dylan albums, and you know that. I think that that he did also influence Paul and vice versa, probably. Yeah, well, Dylan. I mean, Dylan's on record as um, you know being a, a admirer of Paul's, and um, I think he's he once said, I think it was around, I think around twenty years ago, something like that. But he, he did say in an interview, you know, Paul's probably one of the few people I'm in awe of. Yeah, that's almost a direct quote. Um, and said, you know, everything that comes out of his mouth is framed in a melody. Yes. Dylan said, uh, which is, yeah, it's true because even his, his speech is almost musical. I you know? know, it's true. But um, in terms of his, Dylan's influence on Paul, I think Paul, just being the kind of musician he is, I'm not sure Paul's, you know, listening to Infidels or <laughs> Slow Train Coming. He's not going deep on Dylan, but I think just he's, he, he likes the idea of people, I think. I think Dylan is someone yeah. he likes the idea of. I, I, I'm guessing he's not, you know, um, uh, uh, whereas George was really a, a, a card-carrying Dylan fan. He, yeah. he worshipped him. Yeah. Um, Paul, I think, liked sort of liked the general idea of Bob Dylan and the general vibe yeah, yeah, and yeah. could kind yeah. of cop. Paul's very good at copping a certain vibe from yeah. people and going, right now, how can I work this into my music? Yeah. So... You'll hear a feel. You'll get you'll get a vibe from a from a Paul a Dylan influenced Paul song like "I'm Looking Through You," but you won't necessarily lyrically. You know you you won't find you won't find many Dylan esque lyrics in Paul's songs or anything like that. Am I making sense? Yeah, I'm wondering when I, you know, in terms of like influencing influencing each other. You know that Paul. I, I think you're right that that's how Paul seems to incorporate things into his own music. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to borrow some stuff that I think is interesting, turn it into my own rather than I am the follower of you. You know. Um, I wonder if do you think Paul's difficult to borrow from since melody is his greatest strength? Do you think other artists like a Dylan would be hard? It would be hard for him to be influenced by Paul because it's just natural. Um. That's an interesting question. Uh, I guess Paul is hard to copy. I mean, there is the, you know, there is now the adjective McCartney-esque. Yeah. You know, that that's, that's a pretty broad term, really, when you think about it. Because if you think of all the different types of song that Paul has 
has done. Yeah. Um, you know, what what is what truly is McCartney esque. Yeah, yeah. I guess what you what you're saying is maybe certain melodic choices or just being very melodic is in its own way being McCartney esque. Yeah. Um so in that sense, you know, maybe maybe you, you, you can sort of um use them as a as a model, but in terms of nailing down, like you know, I grab a guitar and start playing a few chords and singing a slightly nasal voice and you could say, okay, I'm copying Bob Dylan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that I'm not not to be reductive about Bob Dylan, <laughs> but just just, you know, he right, has a right, very right. distinctive sound and style. You know it instantly uh when Bob Dylan opens his mouth at it's him. Even yeah. though he sings, you know, he's he has different styles of singing, I guess, um, depending on what era Dylan, but you can yeah, generally yeah. he's very recognizable and he has a certain thing that he does and he does very well whereas Paul just kind of runs the gamut of styles and can yeah. sort of he's a shapeshifter in a way mm-hmm. that I don't think he gets enough credit for, for being yeah. um, the same way as, as you know someone like Bowie you know um, you know being described as this musical shapeshifter chameleon whatever I think Paul can kind of do that too mm-hmm. so in that sense yeah he is hard to um, it's hard to, qual- to quantify or qualify exactly what is a, a McCartney-esque what is McCartney-esque you know what do you think simon of this of this song i was just waiting for brian's analysis really to sort of <laughs> illuminate it for me yeah which he's done um I, I just always um was attracted to the title i think it's a, a lovely title and um and as brian mentioned i've just seen a face and titles like that always appeal to me you know the they have a certain quality and this one does that for me and yeah it's a it's a nice song, um, but I never had that kind of um, understanding of the sort of Paul and Jane, or you know, story as an undercurrent for that. And so when Brian explains that, it sort of gives me an extra dimension to think about. But yeah, it's um, it, it's just another link in the chain of that period of when they were sort of developing, I suppose. Um, but as Brian said, consistently turning out stuff that has merit and, and has quality you know mm. um so yeah they, there's a standard that they don't seem to drop beneath at that point yeah and then and from the, there it's just a trajectory that just keeps going up and up isn't it yeah, yeah. and li- lyrically i think you know paul doesn't you know he's been maligned for some of his lyrics over the years or maybe being a bit lazy with so and you know it's probably well it is true he, he can be a lazy lyricist i think yeah. I think that's just the truism. I don't even think that's, that's up for debate, to be honest. <laughs> right. But when he, he, you know, when he gets it right, he's one of the best, I think. Yeah. And this is a great lyric. Some of the lines in this, you know, um, love has a nasty habit of disappearing overnight. Ooh, yes. That's just, you know, that's a fabulous job, you know. Um, Cutting, oh. <laughs> and, and again, in terms of this is maybe a lyric that you would, you'd say is more John-esque than, than Paul-esque yeah. in terms of it's again the that slightly um slightly bitter quality to it and you know you yeah uh, you were above me but not today the only difference is you're down there like what oh like what God. does he mean by that you were above me but not today now you're down there oh yeah it's kind of um the servant has become the master here yeah. yeah there's there's lines you can grasp and then there's other lines that are a little bit more opaque and it it's it's an just an interesting little peek into Paul's brain. I think at that time, which he doesn't allow you 
that often. I think that's a in great point. That's a great point. I think these angry songs with Jane actually <laughs> gives us quite a bit of insight into him. Actually, you know, I think when they yeah. met, he was willing. There's lots of accounts of he was willing to be taught by. I talked to, uh, I interviewed uh, Peter Asher, and you know, he just said that Paul was willing to take it all in and learn from them. And I'm mm -hmm. sure when he moved in with Jane, he probably thought she was, you know, incredible, like this beautiful, well-educated, lovely woman that was upper class and from London and sophisticated and all these things. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that, um, I think it's interesting that Paul is always viewed as the romantic, and yet so many of his Jane songs are angry, bitter, I'm gonna get back at you songs, you know what I mean? Exactly. It's like, yeah. that's what that's what inspired him, is it their fights. Yeah, well that's it, and it just goes to show, you know, Paul's often, well, I, I don't think it's as common now to, to sort of um, say Paul's the lightweight soppy balladier. I yeah, think yeah. I, I like to think that that's being put to bed at this point. But yeah, yeah. you know, a song like this is is definitely evidence to the contrary. I'd say there's a there's a quote from John. I'm gonna butcher it here. Like I, I can't. I'm just paraphrasing. But he made the point that he always. This was in the '60s. He said, "I always laugh when." they send Paul the difficult ones because they don't want to send them to me because mm -hmm. his point was is that they think I'm tough Paul's tougher he can cut people down in a second and so you know he was kind of like I'm the nicer one like externally I'm the tougher one but Paul's way tougher and I think that you know you highlighted some of the really cutting lyrics in there my goodness I'm not sure I'd want to be the girlfriend of this guy <laughs> you know when he yeah. gets angry he's he's cutting you know and it 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 like no reply both of these songs seem like two guys that are very self-centered and get very emotionally involved and uh, are reactive you know but, yeah but they certainly they certainly are into their their relationships you know yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah um yeah i mean they, you know they i guess it's the context of the period as well a young kind of northern guys there's probably a certain element of chauvinism oh, in there as sure. well um un undoubtedly <laughs> really, yes yes, but, yes yes yeah I you know i think this sh this song showcases like the the conflict of paul and jane you know you you read so many things about them that they were both like in hunter davies book he talked he loved them as a couple and just thought they were so loving and lovely and i've talked to barry miles and he said they were just this amazing couple but then you also hear or read things from other people who said they fought like cats and dogs and mm -hmm. i think it was both of those things you know i think that they were probably pretty similar in that they were both extremely talented and smart and headstrong and you know that probably both attracted paul to jane but also drove him insane yes um, you know and and i suspect i suspect based on the fact if you look at paul's relationships like paul and jane heather mills some other people that he's dated uh and even with linda like i suspect that paul loves drama-filled relationships. I think he likes a lot of drama. And, you know, you wouldn't think about that with Paul and Linda, but there was an interview that he gave in the early 80s where he talked about the fact that he said, we're fairly volatile, but I like it that way. You know, it keeps things interesting. And so, you know, and that's surprising yeah. to me. 
Yeah, you know, I, would have, I would have thought he'd just be building bonfires and smoking dope. Well, that's that's my image of Paul and Linda, is like songs we were singing, sitting around. <laughs> and yeah. maybe they got there, but this is the early 80s when he's talking about it. And so maybe right. they were still kind of working that out. But mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I have, re I have read some interviews with Paul where he's talked about that, you know, they've had them, they had their moments. And, you know, it wasn't all sorts of sweetness and light all the time. I right. think even like the night before the wedding oh yeah they almost broke up they had a huge row yeah. and and almost called the wedding off you know <laughs> so it was not um you know what no marriage is perfect i guess and and you know but it, it somehow it, they, they made it work oh well, that's pretty volatile i mean marriage preempting fight is insane you know and and i think that there's such a difference between paul's image and then who i think he is really and i think that this song is a good insight into this guy isn't so calm and easygoing yeah. all the time, you know? Yeah, no, definitely, yeah. Okay, well, two great choices. So onwards with our list. So we're gonna go to a Simon song, which is... Mother should know. Why did you yeah. choose this one? Well, it couldn't be more different than my last choice, really, could it? Um, no. I guess McCartney is um, appealing to the listener with his sort of musical style that he's very fond of. Um, and this is a song about, well, it's a song about songs to an extent. Yes. And it's also about respecting your elders, I guess, yes. or you know, at least giving your mother some credits for what she might know. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and I think um, he wrote it after hanging out with family members. And I think family is important to Paul. You know, he he spends a lot of time with family or, or he's, he's certainly cited family members in songs before now, hasn't he? Um, Auntie Jin and yeah. um, mm -hmm. uncles and, you know, his brother. And family is important to him, I think. So um, this is sort of, stemming from that tradition that he's part of and the songs that he probably learned from his dad and and all of that stuff so it's um yeah it's an interesting one i think it's um quite melancholic i find mm -hmm. you know it's got that sort of minor key sound to it and um it has some some interesting moments throughout that sort of sing-along la da da kind of version yeah. of the um of the chorus and i think that that's perfect for that kind of song you know it's a sing-along almost um and he's trying to encourage the audience to kind of sing along with it um it it fits alongside songs like when i'm 64 i mm -hmm. suppose in that tradition of um musical kind of stuff but when i'm 64 is a much more upbeat kind of song or or at least it's it's it has a more pleasant kind of nostalgia to it this one i think just borders on being uh, a little bit more downbeat um, and it's got that organ section in the middle as well which sort of just comes out of nowhere 
you know, that kind of instrumental. Yeah, I find that quite uh, melancholy, that Yeah, section. it's fu- funereal in a way, almost. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and, and I've got a bit of a fondness for this one because me and Brian sang this on the radio one time. <laughs> yes, we did, yeah. Many years ago, um, we were on the BBC in Liverpool and there was a young woman who'd been invited over to Liverpool. I think she was from Russia. I think she and, was, yeah. And she'd been invited over for a Beatles convention or something because she was like a fanatical Beatles fan. Yeah. And um, she wanted to sing this song on air. So mm-hmm. because we were on the same edition of this show, they said, <laughs> would you back her? Yeah. So we said, yeah, okay, no worries. We'll we'll play that for her. And then when we got there, it turned out she was too shy to <gasps> sing the song. Yeah, she barely opened the mouth, yeah. Oh, no. So we had to we had to perform it. I think she did BVs in the end or something. <laughs> so I, I sort of think of this song quite fondly and that we were sort of thrust into doing a live performance of a song we hadn't really rehearsed that much, you know? Yeah, it was on, um, it was Spencer Lee's show, wasn't it? He's a, a veteran... Um, sort of broadcaster and writer. He's written a couple of books about the Beatles, actually. Um, he wrote one about, I think he wrote like a sort of authorised biography of Pete Best, or, or certainly about Pete's um, like sacking and stuff called mm. Drummed Out. Mm. Uh, so yeah, he's written a few Beatles books that um, along along the way there, Spencer. But yeah, God, that's, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. And I think this was, um, I read somewhere that it was actually offered up as a potential song for that satellite broadcast that they did in 67, where they did All You Need Is Love. This was a potential Oh, I didn't even know that. Song that was offered up for that. But um, I don't think John or George particularly liked this song very much. So I think it was... Um, Although I, I've heard George's aside. reaction to All You Need Is Love too was kind of like, uh, uh, that's pretty <laughs> basic. So, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> I, think, I think the universal message of that yes, one appealed yes. for that event, you know, that was the yeah, perfect song for that event, for sure. It was. Yeah. I think it's interesting to me that, you know, you get the feeling John and Paul were a bit dismissive of, I think uh, John later called it Paul's granny music. <laughs> uh, I've never seen where that quote comes from, but it's, it's, it's attributed to John that that's where he called it. Um, but which is interesting to me because John and George grew up in that post-war Liverpool and and pre-rock and roll, yep. um, when a lot of the songs they would have grown up on would have been precisely those vaudevillian musical, you know, yeah, yeah. around the piano yeah. uh, sing-alongs, yeah. um, and not 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 to mention the kind of American songbook and all the old sorts of standards, Gershwin and Cold Boards and all that. Yeah. That was the stuff they would have been hearing on, like. The light program and, and and all that before any you know Elvis and Buddy Holly came along, yeah. And I just feel like that just went deeper into Paul than it did them maybe in in some way. Like Paul really, because I've seen Paul, I've seen it said that oh those songs are oh Paul smug, you know, uh, kind of piano musical. Yeah, yeah. So and I'm, I never saw them as smug. Oh my god, no. I, I think they're very genuine. What? They're coming from a very genuine love of that. Uh, style of music and that era of music because, uh, you know, as I said, you know, in terms of his family, that they had a lot of the McCartney family very close, a very he had a very big extended family, who had yep. a lot of parties, and his dad would play the piano and everyone would sing, and you know, those were the kind of songs his dad would would play. I, I would imagine and that's so. So Paul just kind of by osmosis picked up that style. Well, and yeah, yeah. I think I think that you've hit on something. I have a personal theory about this, about John, why 
two things, why Paul is so connected to this music. And like in Paul's lyric books, he talks about the New Year's Eve parties and mm-hmm. the extended yeah. family. And they'd all, like, this is a quote, he said that, uh, that we, they'd all come together and we'd get a very wide, lusty view of life from all these generations. So this idea of like the fun being connected to these songs being, you know, I think there's something, a very warm feeling for Paul around these songs, mm-hmm. but also it's very connected to his father because he talked about his father getting behind the piano. And I have sort of a pet theory that later on J- John reacted to these songs because it was more John who re- reacted than George because I think that he, I think that John was always on, in competition for musical influence with Jim McCartney. Mm. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, it's an interesting one, uh, and also it could be you know because John didn't have the same upbringing. You know, he was raised by his aunt Mimi, and there weren't many uh, jaunty sing-alongs going yeah, on yeah, in yeah, Aunt yeah, Mimi's yeah. house exactly. around the piano. <laughs> so maybe yeah, he just didn't have that same emotional connection to that kind of music as um, as Paul did. Although we, again, he, he he certainly would have heard it, um, well, it on, the, on the radio. Or, yeah, he seems to have been game at the time too. You know, like when I'm 64, he liked. He seem they yeah. seems to have had fun doing this. Like you know, you see them dancing and they all look like they're having fun. And even you know, Honey Pie, John played beautifully. He Honey plays Pie. a great solo in that. Yeah, yeah. He, he he seems again. He seems to have absorbed that style somehow. Yeah. You know, without even know, knowing it really. Yeah. And and I mean, they was they were so good at that. Generally, they they were you know just. Um, you know, soaking up influences from all over, um, but yeah, no, I know I'm I'm very fond of. I, I will defend Maxwell Silverhammer, for example, till my dying day. Really excellent. Um, yeah, although that's not on my list. Um, I, I thought about it, but then I thought we we probably take up an hour. Yeah, yeah, probably. Me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but no, I love and he doesn't do them so, well. They were more of a thing, certainly in the Beatles and, and early wings it does it, it, uh, he seemed to retire those songs i think maybe i think you give me the answer yeah, was maybe he's gonna say that kind of uh, english tea is maybe a little bit in that in that style but i'd say you gave me the answer was maybe the last of those yeah. slightly musical type songs am i am i oh no baby's request there's another one baby's yeah. request um so yeah but then he seemed to retire them a little bit after that yeah i mean i had this on my list as well because I love Magical Mystery Tour, the Magical Mystery Tour album, and I always end up listening to this one on repeat. You know, it's it is like it is the perfect song for this series because you never hear your mother should know talked about. Never, it's never discussed as like a great Beatles song, and yet it's one that I personally listen to quite a bit actually. Um, you know, I just like the the swingy song sound of it. I like. The nostalgia of it, you know, it reminds me a little bit of those were the days, you know, just in terms mm-hmm. of like the feel of it, that kind of sad nostalgia, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And there's not, it's one of them that where there's not, it's really got those two sections, you know, it's got that main verse, stroke, chorus, or yeah. chorus, or whatever you want to call it, and and then that melancholy instrumental section, and, and then that's kind of all there is, but. Somehow it, it it works. Singing 
think Ian, didn't Ian McDonald criticise it because he said that the author couldn't be bothered to come up with a bridge? <laughs> do you think that's yeah. true, or do you think that he it just didn't need one? I well, I don't, I don't think every song needs that necessarily. I think, yeah. Well, I am of the view that you can really do whatever you want. Like, and, and you know, songwriting is really just it's 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 a lot, lot of choices. It's just a series of choices you yeah. make, yeah. and you can choose to have a lyric in that. Uh, middle section or you can choose to just make an instrumental if you want it's it's entirely the choice of the author and if he deemed it no i'm happy with it as it is then who are we to yeah yeah, yeah. question him you know um i had read that too and i was kind of like huh i would never have thought of that but okay maybe it could have been better you know yeah i mean it could it could have been but i don't i, I mean you could say that about a lot of songs but but then maybe that's just that's what he felt it should be at the time. And yeah, you can always think, oh, well, he could have added something there and maybe he should have done this maybe, but that's what the guy did. You know, that's yeah, right. what he chose to do. And and again, who are we to sort of say, well, actually, Paul, you, yeah, you yeah. know, could have put a bit more effort in. <laughs> it probably says something that when I'm 64 has had much more of an impact on the culture in general. Well, yeah, when I'm 64, it says is a more complete song. Mm. Yeah. It's, you know, it feels maybe a little bit more satisfying as a structured song. It's got a middle eight. It's got, you know, a, a proper arrangement in there in terms of um, George Martin sorts of arrangements. And whereas, you know, your mother should know is just slightly more stripped down, yeah. isn't it? It's not, it's not very more, arranged. Also more minor sounding, and I think when it I'm is. 64, it's a, a little bit more jaunty, and I think it people is. just just kind of understand that more easily, in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. To me, this was on my list for, for a few reasons. A, just because I love it. And uh, I definitely listen to your mother should know a lot more than when I'm 64, though I can understand how, you know, as you were saying, Simon, when I'm 64, it's just easy. It's fun. It's light. There's this whole story. It's happy. Whereas this does have a tinge of sadness. And it's interesting mm. that it's about a mother, you know, and that maybe mm. that's the, the tinge of sadness for Paul is when he talks about mothers, you know. But yeah. the, the, well, it's a definite decision, isn't it, to make it harmonically yeah. the song that it is but so, I think yeah. I think you're right that's that's what keeps me coming back to that I probably listen to that song more than I choose to listen to when I'm 64 <laughs> I'd never yeah. skip when I'm 64 yeah. but I'd, I'd choose um, uh, your mother should know first and I think it is that it almost an ineffable sadness that's in there mm -hmm. you yeah, know on just yeah. <clears throat> under the surface a minor yeah, can't go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of things that I find interesting. Like, I'm never sure if it's kind of a wink at mothers, like, you know, a 25-year-old Paul kind of like, yeah, they're, they're in the know. Or if it's just a memory of his mother, of John's mother. Like, they were fairly young when they died. And mm. there is this sense of, like, you get the sense when you're listening to this song of a young, vibrant woman, you know, that she, whoever she is, there was this side of her too. And... I think it's interesting that in Sgt. Pepper, which is so way out there, a psychedelic album, that Paul grounds each of these albums. He pulls one of these songs in, and I think it's so inclusive. It's so Paul to have something that is not super cool, that is kind of like a sing-along that every generation can embrace. And I think that's mm -hmm. part of the magic of the Beatles, you know, whether it's Yellow Submarine, you know, some of these things that are criticized now for, I think, that's what makes the Beatles not scary and everybody can love them. Exactly. Well, I said something 
similar on another uh, podcast we did where I the people who pour scorn on the on the sort of the silly songs and yeah. the jaunty pianos yeah, yeah. sing along songs almost you almost don't deserve to call yourself a Beatles fan yeah yeah <laughs> if, if you dismiss those and then embrace other things but you, but you don't you, you have to embrace the whole kind of tapestry I think because that's what makes them special um, if it was all songs like No Reply if it was yeah. 14 songs like No you, we wouldn't be talking about the Beatles now yeah. the reason we talk about them is you'll have alright well to, to, to you know look at Revolver you know you've got Taxman, Eleanor Rigby, Yellow Submarine, yeah. Yeah. Know, For No One, um, Good Day Sunshine. You know, you just got this like array of styles yes. and feels, and um, and that's what makes them so so great. That kind of and, and that lack of of this sort of what what's perceived to be cool. They yeah. were, they weren't interested in being cool. They just did what they felt like doing, which ironically enough is the coolest thing oh, I yeah. think anybody can can do really. In terms of music and art, it's just completely follow your own instincts. Yeah, I think Paula said that too recently that they didn't just do cool songs. They did this broad spectrum and it adds an element of sweetness to them. You know, like Led Zeppelin growing up, as much as I liked them, there was a certain coolness that was a little bit exclusive. Yeah. Um, whereas the Beatles, no matter how cool their songs were, there was always one that was sweeter, easier, more inclusive. And I think... You know, that comes from Paul Paul being so connected to his family. I know, I know they all were in their own way, but mm -hmm. him more than anyone. I think that there must have been part of him that no matter how far they went, he didn't want to disconnect from his family, you know? Yeah, no, I had to agree with that, yeah. yeah. All right, well, I guess we better move onwards because we've got a big list here. <laughs> um, okay, the next what one is Daytime, Nighttime, Suffering. She gave you there on the ladder of regret I the river give her all she gets What does she get for all Daytime, nighttime suffering. Yes, um, which was uh, I think the B side to Good Night Tonight mm -hmm. in um, 1979. Which I mean, the fact that this song was a B side is incredible to me because I genuinely th consider it one of his best solo songs. Okay, tell um, me why. It's just very. It's just satisfying. It. <laughs> I think that's the word that you know. It just. It, it's just got it's just kind of knows itself it's got just such a strong identity as a song that the sub it's you know it, it's lyrically i guess i think he's talked about it as being a sort of companion to lady madonna mm -hmm. it's kind of uh, kind of a, a pro-woman mm -hmm. song and, and sort of showing empathy towards you know difficulties women face in the world and yeah. stuff like that it's and there is definitely that elements in some of the lyrics then some again you've got some more opaque lines in there like the, the you know flow mighty river yeah, sort of stuff yeah. which I, I i'm you know i don't know if that means anything in the context of the song or it was just what came when he wrote it and it sort of fit so he went with it again it's just going with his instincts mm. um but just yeah every just everything works uh melodically 
um, you know, it's just the surprises in there that the, the sort of shifts into different sections. You have this little acapella uh, breakdown. Yeah. These almost Beach Boys harmonies. Um, Paul's bass playing on the track, I think, is exemplary because <laughs> I'm a bass player and this is a song I would play to people if people so someone wants to learn how to play bass and support a song yeah um this is a song I would play them because it's he's sort of creative but he's never let it, 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 it get run away from him the bass line it's just it's very supportive but it's it grooves it's melodic um it just it, it the feel is spot on um it's just Paul firing on all cylinders this song I think um I think he and I love the story behind it where uh I don't know if you know this but basically good night tonight was the a side mm -hmm. which weirdly to me I I feel like that should have been the b side maybe mm -hmm. as catchy as that song is it's not much of a song it's I like mm -hmm. it but it's it's more of a it's like an idea just <laughs> you know it's, it's almost like a, 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 a what would you call it a sketch yeah, it's a sketch of a song that's just like stretched out over a few minutes. It's fun, mm -hmm. it's enjoyable, but it's it's as a song, there's not a lot there. Um, whereas this, you know, is is very complete sounding. Yeah. Um, in the same way as something like Another Day, I sort of would put it in with with that, just in terms of how well it's constructed. It's got this almost, it's almost like a little mini suite in oh, its own an way. Another Day is so superb. I'll have to talk about that at a different time. It's so good. Yeah. And um, but this one basically they needed the B side for the single, yeah. and Paul said, "Well, to the rest of the band members, okay. Well, if we all go away over the weekend, everyone write a song, and you know we'll pick from what everyone writes. We'll pick the B side. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Lo and behold, Paul comes in on Monday morning <laughs> with, with this one, <laughs> and that becomes the B side. I mean, who who could have foreseen? Amazing. Um, I choose but, mine. Yeah, yeah, which just made, it really makes me laugh that, you know. Oh, I, um, I mean, I can't imagine the band really thought they had the chance. They probably um, did. They probably thought that, oh, my God, maybe Paul's tired of writing because he's got this competition. Yeah, you I know? mean, maybe Denny, Denny might have thought he had a fighting chance, you know, but um, I don't know about Lauren Stube or, or, or Apparently Steve Apparently Linda went and wrote uh, Yeah, well, you know, yeah, maybe, but... Um, yeah, it's just a very, very satisfying song. And I think Paul uh, is keen on it. I know he's remarked upon it. He put it on Wingspan, mm -hmm. um, the Wingspan compilation. He mentions it. And um, I think the first time I heard this song mentioned was in the Beatles recording sessions book. There's a little interview with Paul at the front of that yeah. book that Mark Lewison conducted. And that song came up in that. And uh, when I read that book, for it, I'd never heard that song. So I kind of sought it out. It became one of my favorite ones surprise you in certain ways as well yeah i like his voice on this one too it's great a vocal bit, yeah, yeah a little bit rough um I, I i actually grabbed this quote from the um the, the lyrics book paul says i'd like to think that i've always been very empathetic towards women but the point was brought home to me one day when a girl stopped me and asked have you ever realized how many of your songs are about women I haven't ever really thought about it. All I could respond was, yeah, well, I do love and respect women. 
I got to thinking that my feelings towards women might have come from my mom, the fact that I always remember her as gentle and happy on the most basic level and in unexplainable ways. She embodied the humanity that you might find in my songs. And, uh, you know, I thought of this song when I read that, that it is interesting when you look at Paul's catalog that, you know, a subgenre within his, his catalog is these he empathizes with women, whether it's Lady Madonna, Eleanor Rigby, Jenny Wren, Another Day, Your Mother Should Know. He's always kind of thinking about the woman's perspective, too. Maybe it goes from just thinking about his mom. Mm-hmm. But I love the fact that he did this in the 70s, where you get a lot of these these really masculine, like this is kind of like the rock hero era. And I don't think it I don't think it worked that well for Paul's rep, you know, songs like Another Day. It was shocking to me that even when I was digging into Ram like 15 years ago, it was always considered to be lightweight, like Another Day, you know, or or something like this. I don't know if Paul knows that sometimes he can be feminist. I'm sure he would not have called himself that. But I think in channeling and empathizing with a woman's perspective, he is, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, what you said about you know, it, it probably didn't earn him much credibility at the time. That's yeah. another of the, the the great things about him, I think, is he never really, he, he just follows his own nose creatively, yeah. just wherever he feels like, you know, it gets, I mean, he said this himself, but, you know, the height of Punk releasing Muller Kintyre. <laughs> well, I, I guess it came out kind of, I think Punk kind of passed. It was more like New Wave, mm. really, by the time Muller Kintyre came out. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the fact that, you know when when all this kind of spiky guitar music is happening yeah he goes and does this scottish folk ballad with bagpipes you know and i don't even think it's, he does it to be contrary no i don't I think, think so he either. just he felt like doing it he, oh i'll do that and you know i don't think um maybe there was some eye on because he, he likes he liked to have hits certainly back then yeah but uh, you know um whether he knew Mulligan Tire would, would end up being the hit yeah. it was, it's hard, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. hard to say. But but still, you know, he didn't have to do that. He just did it because he, he felt like it. And I always um, think that's Paul's form of rebellion. It's just like, don't tell me what to do. You know, I'll do what I want to do. I mean, it's. I think it's a terrific song too. I love it. I, I think that's hilarious that he made everybody go. And, I mean, he should have had an external judge yes he was gonna have a competition but uh i guess he just needs he needs that level of competition yeah maybe that was just what he needed to get the song written it was like he knew ultimately it's gonna be my song but he he created a this set of circumstances by via which he was able to come up with the song he needed he does that throughout their career with sergeant pepper get back always these frameworks of like let's put pressure on ourselves false pressure on ourselves somehow you know yeah okay next song is dear boy Ramp, um, yeah. and that that combination of Paul and Lindy, you know, um, 
on this record they, they sound great together and um, again it's quite an English concept isn't it of Paul's to say dear boy you know it take oh, that yes. phrase and, and to use it in a song um, but what he does with it is just kind of unbelievable really you know he, he creates that incredible kind of vocal arrangement that's on that song um, you've got that motif which is like the sort of constant ringing you know the da 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 oh, yeah. I guess it's Um, and then you've got that very kind of plaintive melody soaring yes. over the top of it. Um, you've got that ending, that very kind of orchestrated ending where it really resolves and comes to an end. As Bryce said before, he creates these kind of little mini operas, these little suites of, yeah. <laughs> you know, music. And it's just, as a piece of music, I think it's just incredible. incredible. It probably doesn't get enough credit um, to go back to the theme because... I guess Ram wasn't particularly well received at the time and it just took longer for people to to dig into that one and mm. to sort of uh, realise that, that this is a spectacular piece of music, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's a great version of this on um, that album that Tim Christensen did. I'm sure you know Pure McCartney, mm-hmm. uh, which has the same name as that Macca compilation from 2016. Yeah, which came out, came out before, earlier, yeah. Like 2013 mm-hmm. or so. Um, and it features one of our favourite artists, Mike Viola, singing dear boy in a live context and it's he's backed by tim christensen and the damn crystals and it's just magical i think and it really just for me shows what an incredible composer mccartney is when you hear it in a live context with all those people trying to put it together in the moment the intricacy you realize wow this this is something else you know so yeah that's why i chose this one there's a, there's a little bit of the music hall creeps into to that one i think as well like like the, the use of the phrase "dear boy" is, yes. is yeah, a very that, Noel Coward thing, yes, isn't it? Yes. Like, sure. You know, um, and 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 even musically, a little bit. There's a little bit of that that in there as well. But I think that's another great and slight again another slightly not mean lyric, but like that that last line about oh, yes, um, it is. Uh, you know, but you never knew, dear boy, how much you missed, and even when you fall in love, it won't be half as good as this. Uh, yeah, like so. It, that's like I don't know. It's a complicated line. <laughs> oh like, my god! So you know, you might find someone else, but it won't be like it won't be as good as this. Yeah, there's no hope for you. The ultimate. <laughs> it's the ultimate kind of breakup song. I'm not sure if Paul slightly regretted the song because I think because it was obviously aimed at Linda's first husband, mm-hmm. who I think subsequently like committed suicide. Not, I don't think it was anything to do with that song. Mm. No, no, but, no, no. Um, but still, I think because I've heard him mention a few interviews, you know, he felt like a bit badly later on because that guy had a you know quite a sad end and you know in that in that light of that that song comes across as maybe a little bit meaner than he intended it you know really it was a celebration of linda by by way of saying hey you know didn't you realize what you had when you had linda yeah yeah this is a this is a very complicated song i i personally think that this should be seen as a genius song like this is exactly Mm -hmm. the song that would be at the top of my list for for this particular series because i think this is one of the best paul songs like just best period um agreed but it's this song you know i did an episode on ram and it's of of course like epic i think we talked about this song for like half an hour because everything this podcast does is epic in length but um this song to me kind of represents Ram, what Ram is at its core, is it's such an emotional album. There's this kind of um, tension 
between there's an anger and underlying anger and hurt and defiance in Ram. And then there's kind of like this happiness and exhilaration. And I, you know, it was such an important, interesting time of his life, the breakup of the Beatles, the coming together and sort of reinvention with Linda. And I think you hear this in so many of the songs and none more so than this one. It is like, you know, this is the ultimate put down song, dear boy. It's such a polite way of saying you're a fucking idiot, dear boy, (laughs) you know, that look at what you missed. And I personally think that it was both, I think Paul's just channeling his feelings, uh, you know, of the Beatles, of the breakup of the Beatles. And I think he was probably just heightened, feeling hurt and wounded and not appreciated. And I'm sure this partly extended to John Lennon, the song, Mm -hmm. and partly then he probably empathized and felt like that against Mel C. You didn't appreciate Linda and how she's amazing. And John, you didn't appreciate me and I loved you and you didn't see that, you know? And I think it's so amazing because I sort of see this as Paul using his magic powers of surrounding this song in melody so that you don't notice how mm-hmm. pointed and bitter and how much he's putting down the original person because it's so beautiful, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's a great description of, of what makes Ram as good as it is. You know, that combination of anger, uh, defiance, ha- happiness, and yes. fr- fr- creative freedom. Yes. It's like that confluence of all those things yes. is, uh, is, is very unique, I think. And that's what makes it stand out as a Paul album and probably his best solo album because never again really did all those factors combine in that exact way to create yeah. that result. Um, it was just very much, um, it's very much a moment in time, as any album is, but, it, you know, that just came at a particular time when he was still simmering, yes. you know, you know, with yes. the Beatles breakup. He was obviously very happy with Linda starting a family and all yeah. that, and it's all in there, and it comes out in this, like, explosion of it does. great great music. And, and he's, I mean, as much as I love a lot of his other albums, he's never really matched the, that particular magic that has. I don't, I don't think he could. I don't think anybody could, you know... It's such a unique record in that respect. It's so charged with emotion and and this song more than anything. And, you know, what's interesting is that it's, uh, you know, he's singing this song, but it's it's the power of Paul and Linda together too. their harmonies Mm. in this. And, you know, they're a team sort of looking, looking down at whether it's John or whether it's Mel or, you know, and and a celebration of them. I don't think I've ever listened to this song and not hit repeat because <laughs> yeah. it's so short and concise. It's impossible to tire of it. Like a lot of the stuff on that, you know, Monkberry Moon Delight, I don't know too many people, any any number of songs on that album, Backseat to My Car, yeah. you know, impossible to tire of those songs for me. Photograph is one of mine. I wanted to represent Ringo. Yep. Um, and this to me is 
I mean, I, I, I just think it's a great song, full stop, but one of the best Beatles solo songs. Um, and Ringo had a fair few of them in that first few years after the breakup. Ringo was going toe to toe um, in terms yeah. of the quality of the, of the solo material. Um, you know, it started to tail off towards the end of the 70s, but um, you know, really there's was. some great stuff in there, and, yeah. and this is arguably the pick of the bunch for me. Um, written by Ringo with George, um, I believe on a yacht in the south of France. A lot of songs were written on yachts around that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was, I don't know if it was around like Mick Jagger's wedding to Bianca or something like that, I'm not sure. But um, yeah, um, him and George got together and, and came up with this. And um, I mean, it's there's not a lot to say about it musically. It's a, it's a very simple song, but that's kind of in its, in its favor. Um, it doesn't, it, it, there's no need to kind of gild the lily. They, it's a great idea, um, well expressed. The chords are simple, you know, it's major kind of verse chorus, and then you got shift to the minor for the bridge. And it's it sort of big standard moves in that respect, but it's just bound together. So, like, Ringo's vocal is great, the Spectre esque production really works it's like spectre light mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, they kind of rein it in a bit but mm -hmm. it's you can hear that influence but it, it works which i guess is maybe a carryover from from um all things must pass you know um phil's uh, involvement on that phil i say like I knew. <laughs> um but uh yeah and it's it's uh, it's interesting the way the sort of the you know it's a breakup song ostensibly yeah. but it's become this other thing. It's 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 become more of a universal song about loss. Yeah. I get, and you know, Ringo even pointed that out when um, he performed at the concert for George. You know, the meaning of this song has changed now, and um, and I think that's what it is. It's it's a hard song for me to hear actually now without getting choked up. There's just mm. you know, there's just certain songs yeah. that just do that. You try and sing along, and it just catches in your throat. Yeah. You know. Um, and that's one of them. It's just a, it's a, a simple sentiment, and just that title, you know, uh, photograph. It's one of them things. Well, what could this be? It's just called. Sometimes one word titles can be the most intriguing yeah. titles. It's like, well, what could this? And it, and you find out soon enough what what that refers to. But um, yeah, it's just uh, again just a very satisfying. Um, it just does it, it. It it does a great. It does a job, and it does it well. I don't know what you think about this one. Same. Yeah, yeah. I think that was definitive, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. It, the concert for George thing was the the moment I realised the significance of that song. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Well, at the same, I think. I'd, I mean, I'd, I'm sure I'd heard it before then, but I mean, I love the concert for George so much, and that was kind of a highlight of it. Yeah. For me, and then I went back to the original version after that. I mean, I love that Ringo album, that 1973 album. I think is a, one of the great Beatles solo records. I mean, again, it's, it's someone you can you can say a lot about it, but it's one of you know I can't kind of praise highly enough. I, I think this is a favorite of a lot of people, actually. I think, and it, it, yeah. you know, it's a, it, it's an amazing song. It starts and you're in it, as you said, Brian. It's the the production of it. It's bang it's on right from the beginning and and Ringo's vocals are incredible in it Ringo isn't the best singer in the world but sometimes he sounds amazing you know and in this song yeah. he sounds 
amazing. And it, I was thinking about this. I was listening to it yesterday, thinking that ultimately, I think the Beatles breakup was a very bad thing for all of the Beatles. But but in some ways, this early period after the Beatles broke up enabled Ringo to develop a musical personality separate from the Beatles in ways that people probably didn't expect. You know, I think some of that's been forgotten. What a big star mm -hmm. he was in the early 70s and how much success he had in the 70s. Yeah. He really thrived in those those first few years. Um, he, he was like, you know, again, he was going toe to toe in terms of like, you know, sales and yes. chart placings and whatever. He yes. was, um, I think he, he was, was doing better really than well. Lennon. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, he just hung around a bit too much with um, some of the uh, the Hollywood carousers, yeah, didn't yeah, he? Yeah. Like Harry yeah, Nielsen yeah, and, uh, and, you know, things went a bit south for him after that for a while. And he maybe just wasn't paying as much attention to the quality control. Well, he, also, yeah. he also had to depend on, you know, the others to... I guess he could have got... I guess he could have brought in other good songwriters, but it seemed to be that he leveraged the music that he got from the other guys as well yeah i guess i mean yeah john and, and along that ringo album you've got songs by from i'm the greatest john wrote six o'clock yep. paul wrote and yeah those are yeah, great songs he, but i think i mean i think they would have happily just i mean and i think they did continue to sort of chuck the odd song yeah, ringo's way did. here and there but um it's just a, again just a very emotional i think it's a song like if you've experienced loss in any yeah. way it, it's just it rings true and it does oh, it in yeah. a very unpretentious way it's not trying to pull any strings it, it feels it's a very genuine expression i think that's interesting because the, the thing the reason why it pulls at the heartstrings is it doesn't seem fixable it's just a loss like if he's not singing that maybe i can get you back it's kind yeah. of like I think this is interesting because he wasn't breaking up with Maureen then. George wasn't breaking up with Patty then. And so where was this coming from? I think this is in the post-Beatles breakup period. And I think, mm -hmm. I hate to read the Beatles into each of their songs, but I do think that it's underrepresented how emotionally devastated George and Ringo and John were by the breakup of the Beatles. and. You know, I could be completely wrong, so this is just my, my thoughts on it, that I think elements of the loss of the Beatles probably seeped into all of their music. And so whether this is specifically about that or just like the feeling was um, informing this song. Yeah, know? I mean, that, that, that's valid, I think. Um, I think any songwriter, you know, there's those, even when you're not expressly writing about a particular thing, those feelings sort of bubble up from yeah. somewhere, even when, you know, when you're not conscious of them. Yeah. I so mean, I think that's a very valid observation, yeah. Yeah, oh, fabulous choice. All of the choices so far has been fantastic. And uh, thank you guys so much for being here. So that concludes part one of Hidden Gems and Unsung Masterpieces. I'll be back with Simon and Brian very shortly for part two. But before I go, I do have a host perspective on granny music. When I get older, losing my hair, many years from now, will you 
he'd still be sending me a valentine birthday greetings bottle of wine if i'd be sorry simon and brian i get extra time here i thought the subject of granny music was worth touching on again because it's a concept that is so deeply woven into the McCartney image, somewhat detrimentally. He's just the guy who wrote Granny music. I'm not even sure if anyone knows what Granny music is, except it's definitely not cool since it's the music that old ladies like, and I guess everyone knows that old ladies have the worst taste in music. Never mind that that's sexist and ageist, it also subtly, or not so subtly, reinforces an idea that McCartney is writing songs for people who have no taste in music. So where did this term come from? Well, from John, of course, in his breakup period, Anger. So first, is it true, does Paul write so-called granny music? Well, granny music is really just music hall-influenced music. And yes, Paul does sometimes write music in this style. It is only a tiny part of his catalogue because he writes a wide variety of music. As Simon and Brian said, that's in fact one of his hallmarks. So yes, he does, but it's clearly not all that he writes. Second, is he writing for old ladies? Well, I did read an article from about 1965 where Paul said he'd be bothered if old ladies and kids did not like Beatles music because he liked old ladies and kids. So I guess he is writing for them, but of course, not only for them. Third, did John hate granny music? Well, he seems to have enjoyed it during the Beatles. He embraced Obladi in India, apparently. He claimed to enjoy the Your Mother Should Know scene in the Magical Mystery Tour. He played beautifully on Honey Pie. And of course, he occasionally wrote similar type music. Mean Mr. Mustard, anyone? And by the mid-70s, John was playing with all kinds of styles himself. So it seems that Lennon didn't always dislike this type of music. But perhaps by 1969, his musical taste had changed, and he was tired of this genre. That could be. This was the period that he was writing Cold Turkey and telling Rolling Stone that he hoped his music was, and I quote, for workers and not for tarts and fags. So perhaps he had a different target in mind. That could be. But I think there is a secondary reason for John's aversion to so-called granny music by the late 60s. And this is my own theory, but I think it's due to its connection to Jim McCartney and the McCartney family. For while John and George and Ringo were also raised on this kind of music, it is most closely tied to Jim McCartney. Jim, of course, was the leader of a successful band for many years in Liverpool, and this was his type of music. And Paul adored his father, and although he chose his own musical path and made his own kind of music, he seems to have had a fondness for this type of music. And perhaps it was a way of connecting with or paying tribute to his father and his family. And I'm sure his songwriting partner was fully aware of this. So there is a connection to Jim. And the reason I think John might have had a reason to dislike this music by the end of the 60s is that John Lennon seems to have had a convoluted rivalry with Jim over the years. This was evident when Paul McCartney filled out a questionnaire in early Beatles days. When asked who his biggest musical influence was, McCartney wrote, his father. This, of course, was crossed out and replaced with the name John Lennon in Lennon's handwriting. All of which was done as a joke, I'm sure. But I do think it also reflects a truth, that John was competitive for who had the most influence over Paul. And Paul's music hall influence was always a reminder of Jim's influence. Now, 
John's competitiveness with Jim was even more evident in Lennon's 1971 St. Regis interview. When asked about why he and Paul had a falling out by Peter McCabe, John went off on a long tangent about Paul and family, dragging Jim McCartney into the conversation, ultimately stating that, I quote, Paul had to make a decision between me and his dad then, and in the end, he chose me. But it was a long trip. However, then, John goes on to say that it was always the family thing with Paul, and now with Linda, not only did he have a ready-made family, but she knew what he wanted and had given it to him. So John's answer to McCabe's question about his falling out with Paul seems to have had something to do with family, at least that's what I conclude from John's long ramble about Paul and family. So I think some of John's feelings about Jim and Paul and family all got mixed up with songs that have a certain musical influence. Basically, granny music is Jim music. And at a time when John was close to Paul and the McCartneys, in fact, Ruth McCartney, Paul's stepsister, recalled how John would often stay with the McCartneys when he returned to Liverpool after his aunt moved away. I suspect at that time, when he had a closeness to the McCartneys, he had a greater fondness and tolerance for this kind of music. However, once Paul and John started having issues and Paul's pull to family was stronger, perhaps John was less favorably connected to this music. Perhaps John saw it as a divide between him and Paul. And I say this because in the St. Regis interview, John makes the point that in 1961, Paul chose John over Jim. But by 1971, John is making the point that Paul chose family. Of course, Paul did continue to play with this style of music, as Brian said, uh, though it was rare. But eventually, he did record the ultimate granny music song in 1974, which was written by Jim McCartney himself, Walking in the Park with Eloise, which is, of course, the ultimate tie between Jim and granny music. So I think this music has a lot of baggage for John. It was Paul's continued tie to Jim and all that he stood for. Secondarily, I think that John... Uh, connected Paul to granny music because it was a way of depositioning Paul in the breakup, which he did again in the court case between the Beatles. John stated that his taste was always different from Paul's, which of course it wasn't. But as with the Lennon Remembers interview, it seems that John was lying because he felt emotional. And when you look at it, Wings actually had a ton of rock songs, and yet this image of Paul as Mr. Granny Music persists. So in my opinion, this granny music label that John gave him has less to do with Paul's actual output and more to do with the fact that this music is loaded for John. Really and truly, we should think of Paul as an artist with a wide range of influences, but due to the breakup period emotionalism and, and battles and John and Paul's interpersonal issues, he ended up with this label. So that's my two cents. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again to Simon and Brian. Please stay tuned for part two, which should come out very soon. Uh, and it is a little more balanced in terms of representing all the Beatles, by the way. We were a little Paul heavy in this first part. So we'll touch upon songs by all of the Beatles uh, in part two. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving it a five-star rating or review or post about it on social as it helps other people find it. Oh, and I have a Patreon account. So if you want to support the show, that would be greatly appreciated. The link is in the show notes. Thanks again. Bye for now. Bye.
W.